Welcome to News Hour Extra. This is Owen Bennett Jones, and this week we are in the US state of Oklahoma, and more precisely in the city of Stillwater, and more precisely still in an absolutely splendid auditorium at the University, Oklahoma State University. And it's got lots and lots of seats here. I hope we fill them because in an hour or two we will be having a debate. And Elizabeth Davis, producer, is here with me. What will the debate be about? Well, we're hoping that we will have lots of people here. It's rather daunting looking out at these empty seats at the moment. Um, no, we're in Oklahoma because we wanted to do a programme about Native Americans in the US today and particularly how things have changed for them over the past few years. You know, particularly in Oklahoma, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that some tribes, at least, are doing extremely well. You know, they're really exercising this tribal sovereignty that they have and making a lot of money in the process and some of them are, are real drivers of the entire state economy. I, I just hadn't realised actually before coming here and we've been doing a couple of days reporting looking around at what's going on that the situation has changed quite markedly over the last probably 20 years. I mean some of the tribes ha still have massive social problems, diabetes, alcoholism and so on but some are finding a way ahead. Yeah, I mean, we went down to the Chickasaw Nation towards the southeast of the state and saw a new medical centre that they've built there, which would rival a medical centre in any major city. A beautiful building, stunning facilities. And, yeah, they've made all the, the money to build that, and it's quite incredible. Yeah, just to make the point, the people in the tribe will get totally free. I mean, yeah. never mind Obamacare. They'll get totally free health care in this state-of-the-art facility? Yep, they will. I mean, the, the tribes provide a, a huge range of services, and obviously the quality of those services and, and, you know, how much of them you get depends on the tribe, but certainly in Oklahoma, the, the largest ones are, are providing an incredible range of services. OK, so that's all coming up. As I say, the theatre is empty, but we are optimistic, and we will be broadcasting from here in a couple of hours' time, and I hope you stay with us over the next hour to listen to this programme on Native Americans in Oklahoma. And this week we're in Oklahoma, which is the place to understand the issues faced by Native Americans because over 100 years ago, Indian tribes who were living in the southeast of what is now the United States were moved here along, in that very powerful phrase, the Trail of Tears. So before Oklahoma ever became a state, much of the land here was with the Native Americans, and since then there have been a complex web of legal arrangements, but the tribes remain very important in Oklahoma. And one of the reasons we've come here is the hope now that some of the dreadful health indicators and unemployment rates and suicide rates amongst Native Americans can be addressed by increasing tribal self-government Oklahoma often takes the lead on tribal issues, and so it's a very good place to discuss this, and I've got a great panel here. We've got Neil McCaleb, who is Ambassador-at-Large for the Chickasaw Nation and was formerly Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs under George W. Bush's administration. We've got Sarah Adams-Cornell, member of the Choctaw Nation and an advocate for Native American culture, education, and rights, and is, in fact, a board member of Not Your Mascot, which we can hear about later, but basically pushes for, amongst other things, name changes in sports teams and that kind of thing. We've got Alison Herrera, who is the co-creator of the Invisible Nations Project on KOSU, one of the uh, public radio stations here. We've got Tayawagi Helton, law professor at the University of Oklahoma, and you teach federal Indian law, and it's quite complicated. And you're, anyway, I'm sure you'll make it all very clear. And we've got Elizabeth Payne as well, director of the Centre for Sovereign Nations here at Oklahoma State University. So, look, I just wonder if you could help 
understand at the beginning the terminology. And I'm going to come to you, Alison Herrera, on this. You broadcast on this, so you'll be aware of all the sensitivities. What language is acceptable and what language is offensive in this whole field of Native American issues? I think, you know, when you talk about naming, I think that's a really important thing for Native people. I, I often use the term Native American in my reporting, but I also think it's important to identify people by their tribal affiliation because that comes first. Um, I also use the term Indian. I also use the term Indian country. I also use the term indigenous, and I think all of those are interchangeable, I think are acceptable. One phrase that I was surprised to hear, which I hadn't come across before, here from Native American was the five civilised tribes. It's obviously an historical phrase, but it was still being used today. Sarah Adams-Cornell, can you explain where that came from and why that's still used? Well, it was um, treaty terms, but I think for contemporary Native people, uh, for me, that's offensive. Yeah, if you're I'm not a part I'm of surprised. those five tribes, then what does that make you? These were the five tribes that way back, sort of in the 1880s or something, were considered more integrationist by the... Yes, that's America. correct. So those five would be Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole. And those are the five that, many of which are now represented in Oklahoma. That's correct. There were some historic markers which gave the tribes that identification. First, this is Neil McKellab. Yep. First, the Cherokees were the first tribe to have an alphabet and a written language. Uh, so they had the characteristics of uh, literature, people of letters. But uh, more recently, after they were removed to what is now Oklahoma and then Indian Territory, they each established a government, a separate government with the executive and the judicial and the legislative, patterned after the United States government. And so because they had these sophisticated governments and were, in fact, self-governing and had territory, not reservations, they were referred to as the five civilized tribes. Now, that's grown to be a misnomer in many ways. I had an experience myself 30 years ago and I was speaking to a panel of university women, actually, and along with a girl by the name of Marilyn Campbell, a beautiful young Kiowa. And she showed up resplendent in deer skin, uh, beaded, and I had on a three-piece suit and looked like a big dork. And, uh, you know, I gave this talk that put me to sleep. I don't know what it did to the audience. But Marilyn got, I'd introduced myself as a member of the five uh, Chickasaws, one of the five civilized tribes. Marilyn got up and said, I'm Kiowa. We may not be civilized, but we are certainly more vivid. <laughs> and I've never used that term since. Uh, well, no, what year was that? Uh, that was 1974. Long time back. Okay, so you've raised some of the issues there that we need to understand. Territories, reservations these issues of sovereignty. And we've got uh, Professor Helton here. So can you just talk us through this? The, the basic point to understand is that some of these tribes, if not all of them, I think some of them, are considered in the U.S. constitutional arrangements to be independent sovereign nations in some way. Can you talk us through it? Sure. Um, so as a result of three decisions in the 1820s and 30s by Chief Justice John Marshall, Native people here came to be called domestic dependent nations. And 
Tribes are pre-constitutional sovereigns. They were recognized as sovereigns by all of the predecessor nations to the United States. All three branches of the United States recognize them as such. And to this day, there are 371 treaties between the United States and Indian tribes ratified. So just to emphasize that point, they're treaties, and treaties are made between governments. Quite right, quite right. So, so when the Americans made a treaty, agreed a treaty with a tribe, that was basically a government-to-government deal. Yes, in fact, Ronald Reagan kept continually used the phrase that he wanted to maintain a government-to-government relationship between tribes and the United States. But for years, that wasn't a reality, really, because the tribes were pretty much suppressed. I think that's right. I think there's a gap between sovereignty and law and sovereignty and fact. So, so now there are 560 tribes. Are all of them in American law considered sovereign governments in, in, in the way you're describing? They all are, although because the United States claims power over Indians. That's why the Supreme Court describes uh, tribes not as nation-states, but as domestic dependent nations to suggest that they are, I guess, quasi-sovereign or semi-autonomous regions within the United States. So, so, so just to understand this, in Oklahoma, the state government, which is the government everyone you know, around the world would understand, there was a state mm-hmm. government with representatives and all the rest of it, uh, sitting in, the, in Oklahoma City. How much of Oklahoma's territory would that have jurisdiction over? That's a very contentious question um, that is made messy as a result of federal policy. Again, for a century and a half, there was no state jurisdiction in Indian country. And then... um, And Indian country was what percentage of Oklahoma? It was all of the Indian Territory until 1889 when the Oklahoma Territory was created. And um, I don't know what percentage. Neil, you might have some sense, I have to admit. Uh, well, all of the state, with the exception of the Panhandle, the three counties in the Panhandle, and the piece uh, in the far southwest corner, mm-hmm. south of the North Fork of the Red River, which was presumed to be in Texas at the time and not part of the Indian Reservation. So all of Oklahoma... With the exception of those two pieces, were at one time tribal territories, and those are the boundaries that the federal government uh, respects. Now, in order for it to be true Indian country, the land has to be held in trust by the United States. And that's where the Indian powers supersede those of state government. What I'm trying to get at is what percentage of Oklahoma today would tribal jurisdiction trump state jurisdiction? You know, I wouldn't hazard a guess. Something less than 1%, I would I see say. it's like that. Okay. I, I, I would say, though, that that point is a little contentious because only Congress can change the Indian country status of land, and although Congress opened up many lands to allotment, there haven't been specific determinations about wide swaths of this part of the country um, that they are no longer Indian country. So the question of disestablishment um, is still up in the air, and that's one reason why there's some uncertainty in this state about regulatory authority. Let, let's bring in Elizabeth Payne now, because I saw you earlier handing out T-shirts with the, with the word, I will, and the, the I will is an answer to the question... Who will speak for tribal sovereignty? Who will speak for tribal sovereignty? And then you've got these T-shirts saying, I will. And you're, you're, you're saying, I will. So what do you understand by tribal sovereignty, and why is it important, and why is it under threat? So with 39 federally recognized tribal nations in the state of Oklahoma, it is highly likely that leadership, students, faculty, staff will encounter tribal nation citizens, and so to the degree we can help everyone understand and be conversant in the topic of federally recognized sovereign tribal nation status, 
the more effective uh, our interaction with our students and with those nations will be. Okay, but what, what are you saying, that people don't understand tribal sovereignty? Yes, and you know, quite frankly, unfortunately, that lack of understanding can um, transcend into inadvertent disrespect. So you have some very unfortunate use of terms like um, welfare, uh, referring to the type of benefits that a, a tribal nation might choose by their own strategy to offer their citizens. If one doesn't understand the nature of tribal sovereignty, they may not understand that that tribal nation is using its own assets and its own strategy to determine the, the benefits they want to offer to citizens of that nation. These citizens are receiving benefits provided to them by their nation with their resources, and that's not a handout by anyone. That is a, a just, nation just, taking care of its citizens. Just to explain it, what you're resisting is the idea that these people are getting a handout and they're dismissed as welfare beneficiaries or, or something like that. The ignorance of that reinforces stereotypes about Native people in general, and so that's, that's not good for any of us. Okay, so what I, let's understand this now. If, if you're in a Cherokee area in Oklahoma, would the police be... Cherokee run, would they be, or would they be state run? Well, we've done an admirable job of solving that problem by cross-deputization, and it's been beneficial to the counties because they don't have adequate deputies or peace officers to police their counties so that the tribal law enforcement groups that are cross-deputized become an auxiliary, if you please, or supplement to the law enforcement in the county. It's been very beneficial uh, to rural Oklahoma. They're sort of working together. What about tax? Who, where, where well, tax is a very sensitive issue. <laughs> Most of the litigation that's occurred between the tribes and the state has been based on taxes uh, because the state has no authority to extend their taxing authority over tribal trust land. Uh, an example in the case of the Chickasaws was we had a fuel station and uh, we were you know, selling the gasoline at a competitive price but we weren't remitting a gasoline tax or a fuel tax to the state government. So the state sued the tribe, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. This was in the mid-'90s, by the way. This wasn't any ancient thing. And the Supreme Court made a huge decision that said the state had no authority to tax Indian tribes on former Indian land, which was the entire state of Oklahoma, less the Panhandle and that small piece south of the North Fork of the Red. At the time, I happened to be the Secretary of Transportation, uh, which depended entirely upon fuel taxes for its funding. So I was somewhat conflicted. But uh, it was resolved by the legislature, which reached a, a satisfactory compromise and permitted the tribes to compact with the state, recognizing the sovereignty of both groups, and uh, came out with a amenable, satisfactory Solution: The tribes don't have to collect the state levied tobacco tax, and it puts them in competition. Unfairly so, a lot of the convenience stores, they're the main antagonists in this, uh, say, you know, because the, the tax on a package of cigarettes is the main part of the purchase of a package of cigarettes. If we jump back in time to the Boston Tea Party, you know, the stamp tax required that to sell tea you had to have a sticker attached to the tea saying that a tax had been paid. And if you look at cigarette packs, there's a little stamp on them that shows that a state tax has been paid. 
But if you're selling on Indian lands, you're not within the state's jurisdiction. And as a result of that, that tax stamp doesn't need to be there. And that means the state hasn't had its taxes collected. They could tax the non-members as they leave. But um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, even a larger issue than the taxes is Indian gaming. Uh, Oklahoma has over 100 casinos, Indian-owned casinos, and they are elevating the economic status of tribes and tribal members. And the reason that tribes can do that, and they have a nice little exclusive franchise on that, nobody else can, is because they're not subject to the state laws prohibiting gaming. It has transformed the situation, this, this uh, casino. Yes. Uh, their, their revenues, I was reading, are something like... Let th- me make a point about billion. the economic impact has been. Yeah, go on. The tribes uh, got together and, and engaged Oklahoma City University, their school of business, to do an objective study of the economic impact of the tribes on the economy of the state. And they determined that the tribes created something like $10.2 billion in revenue from the state that would not have been there were it not for the tribes. And that translated into 84,000 jobs in the state. Yes, they so are a huge economic engine. So you're saying it benefits the state, but it also obviously benefits the tribal people who are getting health care now and other facilities and services that they wouldn't have got. Can I just ask you, Sarah Adams-Cornell, as someone who's very sensitive to Native American culture, is there an irony in this gambling casino culture coming to the tribes and sort of providing you know, very valuable resources for the tribes, but not part of tribal heritage or culture. Sometimes it can be a double-edged sword in a way that it provides revenue so that we are able to then create economic stability. We can offer services to our people, but sometimes the focus on those will pull in a different direction from some of our tribal or our traditional teachings as well. The casinos and the fact that we're prosperous here right now. We're, we're seeing a lot of good things happen. Um, the Native American dollars, the, the Native community, American right? Yeah. But we we have to balance that. We have to find this good balance between that stability and our cultural ways and what's important. Specifically, uh, sometimes not talking about casinos, but uh, environmental issues, the KXL pipeline, and things like that going through Indian Country, and uh, making sure that we're not discounting some of those those traditional ways of protecting Mother Earth. Yeah, but I saw, I saw a state-of-the-art hospital a couple mm-hmm. of days ago, which had been paid for, I think, largely with casino revenues, and obviously providing a tremendous free health service to the people of the tribe, which is something most Americans would dream of, and it's all come out of the casinos. It has. I think if you talk to any Native people, though, they would probably say... You know, we've been working with a budget that's not been at level or where we need to operate for so many years. And that while it's great and it's a a step in the right direction, there's a lot of work that needs to be done within that system to get it to what you call state of the art. And different tribes work in different ways. And especially for urban natives like myself in Oklahoma City, my tribe, largely the Choctaw Nation, they service the ten and a half counties. And so there are so many services urban native people are not eligible for, and that's a big hole in the net. And, and we should say, while we're mentioning health care, that the health indicators are dreadful still 
in many, many tribes. I mean, I've got some figures here. Compared to the general population, alcoholism, 510% higher, diabetes, 189% higher, suicide, 62% higher. So there are real needs to be addressed. Neil McKellar. The uh, budget that was referred to is the Indian Health Service budget. The federal government has an obligation, treaty obligation, to provide health service to Indians and have for over 100 years. But the reality is that the Indian Health Service has been woefully and inadequately financed. And what's happened in Oklahoma and other places is that the tribes supplement the health care budget in order to raise the level of health care to not only an adequate level but to a very desirable level. Let me just uh, raise an issue which I found absolutely fascinating when I went down to one of these tribal areas just uh, a couple of days ago, which was the comment was made that one of the reasons that this hospital, for example, had been constructed was that the revenues that the tribe was getting was no longer being distributed on a dividend basis to individuals. In other words, simply shared out. So the casino that's revenue... A, that's a decision that's made by each tribal government. It's a political decision. Some tribal governments do distribute a substantial portion of their revenue on what's called a per capita basis. And what was fascinating to me was that those tribes got much worse outcomes. Absolutely. For example, uh, the Chickasaw tribe distributes no money on a per capita basis. They put it all into services and education and health. So, so Professor Helton, can you, can you reflect on that, not so much as a law professor, but as a, you know, as more of a political issue? But every, you know, that goes against the American idea of choice, get the money out to the people, they can choose what they do with it, and yet this, this tribe that has held the money back and had the tribal government spend it is getting much better outcomes. Well, I think that collective action is valuable and that not everything connected to community is communist. And so we atomize our funds if we distribute them entirely on a per capita basis. But if we collect them to do things like build schools, cultural centers, museums, language preservation programs, and hospitals, we wind up with much better community outcomes. And that is a political statement. But I don't think it's a surprise that tribal communities would value social cohesion and the rising tide lifting all ships rather than simply scattering funds in a distributed way that doesn't allow for collective advancement. Elizabeth Payne, I can see you nodding. I'm thinking that uh, what Dr. Holton is saying is exactly on point. I'm also thinking about the contribution, not only taking care of one's own citizens, but the additional contributions that these tribal nations make to our state, especially I'm thinking about the area of roads. Those of us in the state of Oklahoma enjoy much better than average transportation due to this partnership between the tribal nations and the federal government. Okay, can I just ask you, Alison Herrera, when you look at Oklahoma, you, you, you live in Minnesota, so you see different experiences in different places. Mm-hmm. When you look at how it's happening in Oklahoma, where I get the impression that the revenues for some of these tribes are getting relatively high and the level of self-government is quite advanced, is that putting Oklahoma's Native Americans ahead in some ways, of Native Americans elsewhere in the United States? I think it's different. I mean, I think definitely um, Oklahoma is a very unique uh, place for Native Americans just simply because of the land removal and because of the land allotments and the land runs and the move for statehood and the way that tribal governments were formed. I mean, yes, Minnesota is very different. I think it's very different for different areas. And, you know, in Minnesota, we have reservations. Professor, just to understand that distinction between a reservation and a 
a sovereign nation, is it? Is that the distinction? So a reservation is a particular geographic area. Um, and the five tribes in eastern Oklahoma, they held their lands in communal fee status. It's now described as restrictive fee. Lots of land is held in trust status, meaning the federal government's the legal owner and the, benef- the tribes or tribal members are beneficial owners. But reservations were used um, really from you know, uh, before, just before the Civil War in, in, the 18, in 1860 um, up until executive order reservations still being created up to World War I. And they're just geographic zones either to which tribes were removed from their original aboriginal territory or a smaller area within their aboriginal territory that's been recognized by treaty or statute by Congress. Okay, we're, get, we're just about to wrap up the first half, but that just, just, just to understand that, you're saying that when you've got a reservation, which is a, a geographic unit, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, and the outcomes seem to be worse there than in these places in Oklahoma where it's more messy and it's more confusing and there's sort of a checkerboard arrangements and it's well, le- le- less I clear. Don't, I don't so so am, I, am I wrong about that? that, that well, where, where, the, where it's been messier, you've got better outcomes. Well, it's, that's... Uh, sorry, go ahead, Alison. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the, in Minnesota we have the Shakopee Midwakanton Sioux, which is in southern Minnesota, and that tribe is, does very well. I mean, they, nice. they have a very nice uh, casino, they have very nice health facilities, and so they are... Um, and some of, and a lot of the other northern Minnesota tribes as well. So, I mean, I don't think you can say... You can't generalize like that. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay, well, well, we'll take a short break now. And just to remind you, uh, if you'd like to comment on the program, we very much welcome that. The email address is newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet at bbcnhextra. And, of course, you can get the podcast. That comes out every week, one hour every week. And just search for BBC NewsHour Extra in your podcast app. And we're in Stillwater at the Oklahoma State University with our panel, Neil McKellab, who's ambassador at large for the Chickasaw Nation. We've got Sarah Adams-Cornell, who's a member of the Choctaw Nation and an advocate for Native American culture. Alison Herrera, who is a reporter with the Invisible Nations Project. We've got uh, Professor Helton, law professor at the University of Oklahoma here, and Elizabeth Payne, who directs the Center for Sovereign Nations at uh, Oklahoma State University here. So welcome back to you all. And I I wonder if we could just pick up in the second half with some of the cultural issues that are are very sensitive here. Now, I think I'm right in saying, if I'd come here 50 years ago, many people with some Native American ancestry may have played it down, not really sort of owning up or, or celebrating their Native American culture. But I'm very struck here. People are very, very keen to say they have Native American links and associations and heritage and so on. Is that uh, a change, Sarah Adams-Cornell? I think it is. I think it's also dangerous sometimes to talk about the success of a tribe by the dollars earned by the tribe. I think that if you lose your cultural ways, if you lose your cultural identity... Is that success? Is that happiness? Um, And so uh, making sure that, again, that we keep that balance. But you're right. There is this large push. Um, A lot of people are more willing to self-identify as being uh, an indigenous person because it's cool now. I mean, let's just say it. Like, people think it's really cool. We see cultural appropriation all over the place with clothing, with at concerts, you name it. It's happening with mascots. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about that soon. You know, I think that it is much more acceptable to be an indigenous person now. And and, and, uh, just before we get on to the mascots, Elizabeth Payne, why do you think that's 
happened. You're familiar with the student body here. So many more students will be, as you say, self-identifying as in some way Native American. Why is that changing? I think to echo the previous panelists, I think there's been a strong foundation laid. Um, I think the students that work together in the Center for Sovereign Nations, the student leaders, many of whom are present here with us this evening, uh, would endorse the fact that they are very proud of their heritage and that being a citizen of a sovereign tribal nation is something that not only do they want to experience personally, but they want to make sure that that's understood and that it's understood well across campus. So I think there's a resurgence of pride for sure. Well, let's ask Neil McCaleb. You're indicating you want to say something. Just well, I, I do. I started being involved in tribal affairs and Native American affairs over 55 years ago. And there were many areas of the state where there was latent and sometimes blatant discrimination. And the reason I became involved was to try to help with that. And the solution to me seemed to be at the time and is now apparent to me, is the economic emergence uh, of the individuals, not just the tribes, but the individuals. And uh, my first involvement was a group called Oklahomans for Indian Opportunity, which was to design to create economic opportunity. But that's not to eclipse or foreclose the uh, close ties that Native Americans have with their cultural heritage. And if they've lost it, they want to reestablish it. The Chickasaw Nation has a program right now, a language program, to reestablish uh, the language. And the Cherokees have an excellent, they have a total immersion program. I mean, they put their kids in preschool and they don't speak anything but Cherokee. In fact, they became a little concerned as they went on that they needed to have a better founding in English. The point I'm making is, For whatever reason, Native American people, uh, tribal members, want to keep their culture alive. If they hadn't desperately wanted to, it would have been obliterated 100 years ago. Yes, because the attempt was to assimilate. There were many attempts to assimilate. And I think that, you know, we talk about this historically, but we're talking about the 70s. That's not that long ago. So I think that these tribal sovereignties offer another layer of protection to make sure that uh, we don't get where we were with boarding schools and basically a, a quarter of a generation of Native people losing their culture by being removed from their home. So sovereignty adds another layer to advocate nation and nation for those protections for indigenous people. Can I just ask you, Neil McKellar, you're familiar with Washington, so you've described the changing attitudes here in Oklahoma as people try and preserve these cultures. When you go to Washington, is there greater sympathy for that than there was you know, in previous years? Well, I'd have to give a mixed answer to that. In some quarters, there, there are. But in some quarters, there is not. Uh, and it, it's a very individual thing. I became intimately involved in the Bureau of Indian Affairs because I was over it for a couple of years. And it's basically staffed by Indians. But, you know, I observed that there was not a lot being done within the Bureau of Indian Affairs to preserve and promote the culture of the individual tribes. And I don't think it was done out of any malice. I just think that they didn't know what to do. But it is worth making a point that the the man who who really changed from assimilation, ending the assimilation policy, was Nixon, wasn't it, in 1970? Uh, Yes, it it was, when he articulated the uh, 
what I call the Nixon Manifesto, but it was it was a policy statement to Congress uh, that said the United States had mismanaged Indian affairs for over a couple of hundred years and that uh, we needed to give the tribal leaders a chance to manage their own affairs, and uh, they couldn't do much worse. <laughs> he was right. And so the policy became self-determination and was acted into law in 1975, and that was a pivotal point for tribal development. Okay, let's move this on. Sarah, Sarah Adams-Cornell, I said at the beginning that you're concerned with some of these mascot issues, and uh, I think there's a particular place called McLeod with its football team that you got involved with, which would be interesting to hear about, because you're saying that, you know, that there is a certain coolness to Native American culture now, but that's not how it's interpreted in a lot of these cases. So just talk us through what happened in McLeod. We were asked to come to the school and, and educate about what a redskin was. Well, just explain. The football team, then, yes. was called... The whole school's mascot were the, ma- were the redskins. And you were called in to say, what are you doing? Right, to, to really just educate and give them the, the background of what a red skin means, that it's a detached skin of a Native person that was collected for bounty. And, um, you know, we have a very close connection with our ancestors and knowing that history of basically being hunted like animals and having, uh, not having the right to be able to self-determine how our image is used. So, so when you went to the school and said, this is an inappropriate term, what happened? Um, it was a very hostile environment. They have a large population of Native American children there, which I think is also... In the school? Um, in the school. Um, and so uh, there was a, a lot of protesting. There were lots of people in tears. There were white women at the podium crying that this was the hardest thing they've ever had to do um, and how they will always be a redskin and don't change this. This is what they have. This is who they are. And as an indigenous woman... That's kind of ridiculous, you know, that they are not feeling the impact of what that does to our children on a daily basis. So what was the outcome in McLeod? They chose to keep the the mascot. But I will say that there's progress being made. We also, my the school district that my children are in, Oklahoma City Public Schools, we took this this piece to them as well and said there's a school there that was also the Redskins, and it was a unanimous decision to change it. So we're seeing a lot of success in certain areas, but it starts with the education. It's, it's a very local example, but of course around the world it's known. There is the Washington Redskins football yes. team, and I think they still have that name. They do, and he's made statements, the, coach, he, he, about the, the coach of the Washington Redskins, uh, over his dead body will will that name change and um, when you do that to a group of people to not give them buy-in on things about their own identity you're you're still putting us in our place you're still telling us that we're not important enough to uh, to protect uh, and so what I, mean, I don't know if other members of the panel are familiar with what happened in McLeod but how do you react to what you've just heard there about that school I think it's tragic I think the especially the small children. I think uh, my husband, Dr. John Cheney, uh, was one of the early researchers on the area of native mascot impact on children. So if there are not a number of available models, role models for a child, the impact of a specific mascot is even greater than it would be for the general public. And the White House just released the White House uh, Initiative on American Indian and Alaskan uh, Native Education. And what they fa- they opened this forum up to Native children and families across the U.S. And they found an overwhelming 
overwhelming amount of children talking about mascots, being made a mascot in their school because they're the only Native child. And, you know, it wasn't just McLeod, but, you know, Governor Fallon's daughter also appeared um, in, what was it, in Indian dress, I think, what was it last? Governor Fallon, the governor of Oklahoma, her daughter came um, at at an event or a concert, I think it was, and appeared in a headdress, you know, and that is a clear example of cultural appropriation. I think a lot of people will say, oh, it's just, it's just a headdress and doesn't really, it doesn't really, you know, what, how does that affect people or how does it really matter? But I think, yeah, you're right. It does really matter. Well, hang on, but isn't isn't there a contradiction there between celebrating people self-identifying as Native American and then being upset when they use Native American symbols. If they were Native American, they would know it was wrong. Mm -hmm. They would know. There's no way that you would take something that's the equivalent of a purple heart and wearing it around at a concert. I think Native people think it's it's likened to being in blackface. I mean, you would never pretend to be an African-American person. I mean, that's clearly offensive, and I think that's the same thing. Neil McKellar, I could see you sort of tempted to come in on this. With some trepidation, you know, I want to point out that a lot of tribal leaders do not share this opinion. Which opinion is this? Against the mascots, and I use the the, uh, McLeod experience because that's a very large concentration of Kickapoo families and Kickapoo kids there. And uh, I don't know whether there's a majority, but a number of the tribal leaders did not endorse the idea of changing the mascot name of Redskin for whatever reason. Well, can you, what, what reason would it be? Because we've just heard a good account of why it might be very offensive. So why would they not well, be... Well, I would say that they didn't see the issue the same way that you've just heard it described. You know, the idea of the headdress being uh, demeaning when it's uh, used on a white person, I, I just point out that in the 1920s, when... Uh, Indians became citizens of the United States for the first time. Uh, You have that picture of the Lakota chiefs placing the war bonnet on the head of Calvin Coolidge. He was goofy looking. (laughs) The point was that they were honoring him that way. And that's the way Indians honor people, whether they're white or they're Indian. Let's let's ask Alison or or Sarah to come back on that. Which is very different from the way that cultural appropriation is happening in our community with no ties to to tradition um, and um, respect. It's it's done out of a, this is beautiful, I'd like to wear it, I think it's pretty, I'm going to appropriate that for myself um, without any knowledge of it. Professor Helton. I I think we're also in in a cultural and legal bind on this issue because we live in a world, at least in the United States, of almost fundamentalist free speech and self-expression. And any individual has this right of adopting the kind of dress and attire that they want and under the First Amendment. And so there are legal obstacles to tribes controlling their own images in ways that I think are really hard to wrestle with. And it goes comes back to respect in part because there aren't very many effective legal remedies. Um, if we came up with le- legal remedies that would say you can't wear things that look Navajo, or you can't wear things um, that invoke Native traditions, then you've got a First Amendment problem. And so the legal structures that we have um, cr- you know, create a very real tension of values. Um, and uh, you know, I think all of us have to acknowledge that, that it's hard to find a good solution to this issue, I think.
Okay, we've co covered a lot of topics, and I'm going to throw it open to the audience now to ask uh, whatever you would like of the panel here. We've got a couple of roving microphones, so just raise your hand. And if you can raise your hand in advance so I can see where you are, and then I'll get the microphone to you. But I can see a question straight away in the front row there. So let's get the microphone now. My name is Allison Black. I'm Cheyenne Ponca Osage Potawatomi. I am from northern Oklahoma. I'm the Pawnee Nation Education Division Director. I have a question for um, the panelists in regards to the smaller tribes being represented, the ones that generate less than $10 million a year, $20 million a year. What is your suggestion for us to be adequately represented and ask these important questions? Pawnee Nation has a plethora of issues going on. How do we get represented up there? So let me just understand your question. Is that, so so some, some tribes, like I think the Ponca which I saw this morning, we're about 3,500 people. So it's a tiny group. And you're saying, how can a group like that get their voice out there? Who's, who's, Neil McKellar, you're the, policy, you're the one who's dealt with the politics. I mean, that's a real issue, I guess. I think one of the things that happened, unfortunately, in the last few years was the legislature decommissioned, if you please, or sunsetted the Oklahoma Indian Affairs Commission, which represented all the tribes in the state. Uh, now there is no central place or central person representing Indian interests within the state government. So, so do, you, do you feel that answers the question? I mean, are you feeling that there is a lack of representation? I think there's a lack of representation. And I can't ever remember the board's name, but there is an Indian education board, and there's 12 members of it. And you see Choctaws, Chickasaws, uh, Cherokees. You right, see the big ones. The big ones. And when I asked at an Indian Education Summit last year, where's the rural tribe representation, um, I was told that Sac and Fox was on there. But Sac and Fox is a completely different people from Pawnee Nation or the Cheyenne Arapaho tribes. I think this is a, a very real problem, and it's not an easily soluble one. The prosperity that we talked about is fairly recent, and it's um, inconsistent geographically. You know, if, if you're in a rural reservation, not near a highway or a population, your gaming facility is not going to generate that much revenue. If your population is very small, you're going to be deemed politically insignificant to um, the people on the other side of the table very often. And this is a very real problem that smaller tribes have less leverage. And um, I don't have good, clear answers, but it's a very real issue to which we all ought to be paying some attention. There's a question up there, yes. My name's Tanner. I'm a student at Oklahoma State. So I had a question. I was going to piggyback on what she said, which is the fact that a lot of rural tribes, um, their gaming centers don't do that well, and they're not near any major um, economic center. So you have the tribes in the south, like the Chickasaw and the Choctaw, have vast swaths of land right next to Texas, which is, um, they don't have any gaming centers there. So it's like sort of natural that they would do well. Um, but then the tribes in the eastern part of the state, it feels like the market is oversaturated. You know, if, so if there's 39 tribes and each has at least one casino, then you're talking somewhere around 60 casinos in the state. And for, you know, uh, counties that have rural populations of maybe 10 to 15,000. Yeah, there is a sort of lottery effect, because if you're in an area that a casino is not going to work, yeah, so, that, that um, tribe just doesn't do very well. I was well. just wondering if, you know, how is there a remedy for the solution? Should we push, you know, rural tribes to diversify faster? Should there be economic incentives for that? You know, um, how do we combat this issue? Because to produce more casinos isn't going to produce more money. Has anyone right. got any answers to that? Yes. One thing that I would like to point out is that the Chickasaw Nation has done a phenomenal job of diversifying their businesses so that they don't rely solely on casino 
earnings. You know, why couldn't a tribe corner the market on fresh fruits and vegetables? Why couldn't a tribe corner the market on, uh, you, you know, and we see that happening in some of the tribes, you know, in Minnesota with, uh, you know, growing wild rice and, and, and being able to um, produce their own energy and things like that makes them more autonomous and uh, better able to uh, be economically uh, on, in a better place. Yeah. There's a question at the back there. Yes. Uh, my name is Nancy Titus Pierzma. I'm a finance professor here at Oklahoma State University. I grew up in western Michigan and was taught as a little girl about the Potawatomi tribe and was taught about the pioneers that settled western Michigan. When I moved to Oklahoma in my early 30s, I saw license plates for the Potawatomi tribe and I was very confused because I was not taught that any Indians were removed from Michigan. I was fascinated by the Potawatomi culture, knew very little about it, asked my eighth grade teacher, could I do an exchange program and go live with the Indians on a reservation? And Mr. Wazinski said in 1973, I don't think they would like that very much. About exchange programs, a very interesting idea. Sarah Adams Cornell, with your concern about cultural appropriation, what do you feel about, I don't know how old you were, when you're saying, I want to go and... 12, 12 years old, saying, I want to go to a, a school where I'll learn about a different culture. Well, I think uh, her comment about being fascinated that she didn't know about the removal is really a travesty. I think that for Native people, that's... Uh, it's, it's another uh, erasure of our culture, of the true history and the, this perpetration of this fairy tale that uh, blind patriotism. We've been mystified as a people that we're, uh, you know, that there's something very mystic about us, which um, that's not an accurate portrayal of who we are. We have tradition and, and culture uh, that can be learned about in an appropriate way. So I think, and I'm hopeful that teachers and leadership will be able to guide students to say, if, you're, if you want to learn about a people, there are appropriate ways to do that, not by going in and doing an exchange program, but maybe going and talking to an elder or a tribal member to learn more in an appropriate way. Uh, but it speaks what, what, very closely to the fact that we are not educating about... Sure, but what would be inappropriate about her suggestion? Uh, because it's kind of like, go look at the circus of, you know, of uh, Native people that you can observe us from the outside, and, and um, it's harmful. Okay, so we're going to have one more round of questions, and then we'll wrap this up. So there's one here, first of all. Um, yeah, I'm Austin. I'm a computer science major here at OSU. Um, my question is just about, back to the McLeod issue um, and the effect that uh, it has on children. Um, my question is just, how deep would you say that that runs, um, the effect that it has on children, and um, what would be the difference between the reaction at McLeod versus, like, the reaction in Oklahoma City? Like, why are they different, and what kind of um, changes would you maybe make to the education to kind of get everybody on par? So more on McLeod, and then there's a question here. Yep. Uh, my name is uh, Gustavo Vando. I'm a, a PhD student in the geography department here at OSU. I am of Maya descent. I come from Mexico. I come from the Yucatan Peninsula. And uh, from what I sense since I've lived here in Oklahoma is a sense of pride in the native people here in Oklahoma, which is something that uh, as a Mayan myself, I don't sense in Mexico. 
uh, here in Oklahoma, what I've noticed is that uh, people are generally proud to be Native American. If I say I'm Mayan in Mexico, that's not a sign of pride. That's mostly a sign of shame. Uh, what is the, re the recipe for success that uh, Native peoples have had in Oklahoma and in the United States mostly to sense, um, uh, I guess, to, to have that sense of pride and identity? One comment I'd like to make or a subject I'd like to bring up, in Oklahoma City, uh, there's been a group of people in trying to have an Indigenous Peoples Day. You would think in the state of Oklahoma, where we have such a huge population of Native people, that our capital city would recognize the importance of having an Indigenous Peoples Day. There were, there were many Native citizens who came together. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm Tammy Adams, I'm Choctaw. And uh, they, trying to get our city council to recognize and, and establish an Indigenous Peoples Day. And it was voted down. And there was no one that even spoke against it. I could not understand that at all. Okay, okay. got the point. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, let's start with that one, and I'll just run through these quickly before we wrap up the program. Maybe I could come to you, Elizabeth Payne, on Indigenous Peoples Day versus Columbus Day. That is a, that's a whole issue, isn't it? My one and only remark about that is that I think it would be important to uh, rectify that. Can I ask why you think there is resistance to changing that? Because our city council doesn't look anything like the city of Oklahoma City. I speculate and it's just speculation, that it's a backlash to political correctness. Exactly. It's a sense that this change exactly is, <laughs> you know, just us giving up another defining thing. But it seems to me pretty easy to admit that celebrating Columbus is maybe not something that we ought to be doing. Um, read his journals and his diaries, and you, you can determine why. And Indigenous Peoples Day seems like um, a much more positive thing that would bring people together. But I think it's a backlash against political I think you're crime. absolutely right. I mean, in Minneapolis and at St. Paul, when we did get that passed, um, there was a lot of questions about, like, well, why, why does it even matter? It's just renaming something. And people would come back and say, well, it does matter. It's like the mascot issue. It's like, you know, it does matter to us. It does, you know, it's a symbol. I'd just like to wrap this up, Neil McKelleb, with coming to you, that student from Mexico Asking your advice, really, and you've, you've lived through this. I mean, you, this has been your life, is, is the issue that he's describing. Can you give him the benefit of your experience as to, as to how to deal with this? Well, I understand. I went to Mexico almost 50 years ago in an economic deal. I mentioned that I was Indian. This guy in the hotel, boy, the conversation stopped right there. And I didn't realize there was such blatant discrimination against uh, indigenous people. Now, what to do about it? Uh, it's a long, difficult, arduous road. And in my mind, it's defined by economic and intellectual emergence of the individuals. And that's reflected usually in this country in the tribal governments. Also, education. The more yeah, that we can, we can educate the population about our culture, about what it means, demystify what it means to be an indigenous person, the more that you see those stereotypes fall away, that you see the pride in people because they're, they're talking, you, they can see themselves in the history books and in the stories they can identify, which again reiterates that we need to reevaluate our historical textbooks and what we're teaching our children. 
I think it's also better representation in media, too, and how um, news outlets, news organizations portray Native people, portray Native stories, and who they talk to, and the kinds of stories that, that they're telling. Okay, thank you all very much. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Neil McKellip, Sarah Adams-Cornell, Alison Herrera, Tyawagi Helton, and Elizabeth Payne. And uh, don't forget, if you uh, enjoyed this week's programme, we do do it every week, one hour, where we try and discuss something with a little more detail, and the podcast is there, BBC NewsHour Extra. Emails, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Shorter comments, Twitter at BBC NH Extra. So do get in touch and we do respond to every message we get. But from here in Oklahoma for now, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones, goodbye. <laughs>